the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Inside the Beltway. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis joins me. Good morning, Governor. Congratulations. Most of the talking heads say you, quote, won, close quote, the debate last night. I hope you feel that way about it. Yeah, no, it was good. Um, I'll tell you, it was a little bittersweet being in Tuscaloosa, just given how Florida State, uh, our undefeated Florida State team, didn't make the college football playoff. So we've, uh, but all the, all the, uh, Crimson Tide fans here have been been very nice about it because I guess you know they're used to going pretty much every year. Yeah, that is that is an unfortunate. That was just unfair, and that's going to end next year. Governor, I want to begin very straightforward question. I'm a graduate of Harvard College. You're a graduate of Harvard Law School. I want the president of Harvard, uh, President Gay, to resign based upon her testimony. Do you have a position on whether or not she ought to go? A hundred percent. And I think what this has revealed is the the rot and the sickness that's been festering in, inside higher education for, for a long time. And, and you understand that, Hugh, a lot of your listeners do. But I think now the broader public is seeing this. Uh, and I think that they're appalled by what was going on. And I would put in a plug for Florida and say how we've done it differently. If you look at how, say, Ben Sass, who's the president of the University of Florida, has handled the, the post-October 7th uh, matters, uh, much different moral clarity, things that you can be proud of. And we need universities that are going to serve a function of pursuing truth and preparing students to be citizens of the republic. They should not be these hotbeds uh, of anti-Americanism and anti-Semitism, but but that's what they've become. And I think back to my time, uh, and I joke when I'm I'm out on the campaign trail speaking with Republican primary voters, I say, listen, I'm one of the few people that have gone through both Harvard and Yale and came out more conservative than when I went in. That's not easy to do. And everyone acknowledged, they, they all kind of get it. But back in my day, you would not have had, I think, this level of vitriol uh, like, like you have now. Um, it has gotten much worse. Uh, Governor, in 1996, the Congress passed something called the Solomon Amendment, which you may recall. It barred uh, law schools that would not allow the ROTC to recruit there from receiving federal funds. Would you be in favor of cutting off, and notwithstanding any other law provision in the supplemental, cutting off funds to universities like Harvard, Penn, and MIT, that have not taken action against the anti-Semitic uh, assaults that have occurred on their campus? 100%. Yeah, it's interesting. I, when I commissioned in the Navy, uh, they were doing battle over, over the amendment with the recruiting because Harvard had, um, had, had barred the recruiters. They were in litigation over it, and Harvard, uh, in, the, in the school that actually won a victory, they eventually got overturned nine to nothing. So I kind of lived through all of that with that. But, yes, it's totally appropriate to do that. Uh, and, and if you're not doing that, then you're essentially subsidizing uh, this kind of this kind of behavior. And it's bad enough some of the stuff that you see with uh, with these university presidents. But then you talk and I you know, look, I've got a lot of friends down in Florida who have kids that are in college uh, in different parts of the country. And, and and these students are scared to even walk on campus now. Some of them are being chased around. Uh, this is totally unacceptable in the United States of America. So, Governor, I expect last night's debate will be the last RNC-sanctioned debate, at least until after New Hampshire, and probably not until then. I don't know if they're going to drop their rules concerning unsanctioned debates. If they do, would you and Ambassador Haley be willing to come on and sit down for a conversation at length on this program? A hundred percent. And I do think we are going to have debate. I think we're going to have a debate in Iowa, and I think we're going to have a debate in New Hampshire. I don't know that the RNC is going to put it on, but I, but I don't think that they're going to block it. And we need to do that in those two early states. I think it's very important. Uh, hopefully they'll, they'll raise the thresholds for, for qualifying. And, uh, and it may end up just being a, a one-on-one debate. And, of course, if the former president uh, is uh, willing to show up and debate, and then doing three, I think, would be, would be really, really good. Uh, but it's an important part of the process. 
Call me, I'll show up. I try and be fair about this. Now, I want to ask you about the enduring appeal of former well, you President guys did Trump. Good. I mean, uh, you, and when NBC did it, there was a lot of uh, kind of uh, gnashing of teeth amongst conservatives because they don't view NBC as, as necessarily, of course, being in, in the side of Republicans. But uh, but it was a substantive debate, and, um, and, and, and there was no gotcha questions. They were all just good questions and allowed us to articulate uh, our plans for the country. I thought Eliana Johnson and, and Megyn Kelly and Elizabeth Vargas did a fine job last night, although Mr. Ramaswamy did do his normal thing and was rebuked for it appropriately. But I'd like to get down to the two, maybe three people if the former president shows up. But let's talk about these polls. The former president stays very far ahead of you. And I'm, I know that those polls can shift. You've got momentum. You've got Governor Reynolds. You've got Bob Vanderplatz. You've got an organization. Governor, uh, Ambassador Haley has her story. But to what do you attribute the enduring appeal of the former president to three quarters of the party? Maybe some of that will chip away, but there's something there. What do you attribute that to? Well, well, first, I think you did is right to point out, you know, on the ground in the early states, it's a different picture than what it is. in some of these national uh, surveys, because I think there's campaigning going on and and people are more engaged and they're going to continue to get more engaged. And and I think you're going to we're going to be very people are going to be very pleased with with what happens in in, in Iowa uh, and beyond. But nationally, look, you can trace it back to the uh, Alvin Bragg and the subsequent indictments. Uh, you You have Republican voters. Uh, that see how Tr- Donald Trump was treated when he was president with the Russia collusion hoax, uh, how the media treated him. And now they see a case like Alvin Bragg, which is a total farce. Uh, and then they see uh, Jack Smith, uh, the Justice Department, which is very politicized, uh, going after. And I think it's been a kind of a rally around, uh, rally around him. And I think you can trace that in the surveys. Now, if you look deeper into that, I do think that he's got a hardcore base of support. But I think a lot of that are people that, that like his policies. They like him, but they are willing uh, to, to go a different direction. And you're seeing that in some of the early states. And I think you're going to continue to see it. But as we now come in, we're in December of 2023. We're going to turn the corner and get into the election year. The question is, is we can we can all agree uh, that we need to end weaponization. We can all agree uh, that we need to clean house. And I will do that. The question is, who's the best person to be our standard bearer to both win uh, and then to deliver on all these different things? And, and I think that's a different analysis. And I think you're going to start seeing more and more voters go through that analysis as we get into the election year. Now, Governor, you mentioned former Senator Ben Sass. When you had a big choice to make, you picked Ben Sass, one of the most uh, qualified individuals in America to run an institution as insignificant and as large as the University of Florida. Do you think that is an example of the kind of person you would bring, for example, to justice, the Department of Defense, the Department of State? And if so, would you put out a list of the people that you would populate your not not get promising jobs? But look, here's a list of 25 people, and I expect to call them all and ask them to serve in some position. So uh, I think one good example of that is my Surgeon General in Florida, Joseph Latipo, who was is really the anti-Fauci. He was speaking out against Fauciism very early. We brought him in. Media has gone after him relentlessly, and he just stands his ground. And he and he's been proven right on all the stuff relating to COVID and all this stuff. But that I think in those positions, uh, justice, FBI, uh, defense, the, the the ones that if you are a conservative reformer, you are going to get blowback. Uh, the key is going to be somebody that has the intestinal fortitude to know uh, official Washington's not going to like you. Uh, they don't want to see reform at justice. They don't want to see reform at those places. So, so of course, you got to have a certain level of competence. you got to be smart in your subject matter, uh, legal issues, military issues, what have you. Uh, but you got to have that, that backbone. you got to know that the incoming is going to come at you, and you just got to view that as, as positive feedback. I will say on defense, uh, I don't think it's good to do these retired generals uh, like Mattis and, and Austin. Uh, I do. I think you need some somebody that, that's got good executive experience that, that understands the military, but has a little bit more distance because I think there's a lot of reform we're going to need to do at the flag and general officer ranks. There's going to be a lot of uh, things we're going to need to do to change how the military is working internally in terms of some of the getting rid of some of the woke ideology and the social stuff. Uh, and I think you're going to have to have somebody who hasn't necessarily been serving with all the top brass, you know, for the last 20 years. Now, Governor, I know some of the retired superstars in the military a little bit, like Admiral McRaven and General McChrystal and Admiral Stavridis. 
I know. I think we're in a position where deep selection is going to have to happen. You're a Navy veteran. You've been in the combat. You know that that means going past the guys and gals on the front bench and finding the best person available. Are you willing to do that? Oh, yeah, 100%. You got to. All right. Now, moving forward on to the Department of Justice, it came up last night, but it didn't get enough of a discussion. I am an alumni of the Department of Justice. It was not political under Bill Smith. It was not politicized under Ed Meese. It is wholly politicized now. How do you fix that, Governor? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, one, we're going to have an attorney general that's going to set the tone and do it. Uh, I think you need to move parts of justice outside of Washington, D.C. I mean, for example, They'll put the Civil Rights Division in Oklahoma or Arkansas. I think that that will draw uh, different types of people. I don't think the, the, the very partisan D.C. lawyers would be willing to move and, and, and go out there. So you're going to have an opportunity to have some, some significant turnover. But it can't just be, yes, you need a strong attorney general. Yes, you need strong deputies. Uh, and you have to fill those positions. You have to have, send those nominations on January 3rd of 2025 when the new con- when the new senate is sworn in you got to be ready to go and, and there's no substitute for that but the big problem with justice is the career folks are very partisan and the and the media like to say well their career they're not political no the fact that their career that doesn't mean that they don't have an agenda it just means they're not political appointees but 99% of the political donations from rank and file people of DOJ go to democrats so how can you say that somehow it's not politicized. So it is. So I think the problem is much deeper than just the upper echelon. Um, and we're going to have to get in there and do something about it. But I agree with you, Hugh. Uh, even when I was a special assistant, uh, you know, 15 years ago um, under, I think, W was president. You know, it, it was um, these were it's just all very professional. You had a lot of confidence. FBI, DOJ uh, is somebody that was that was not a big fan of some federal government agencies like the IRS and Department of Education. It was defense. It was it was Intel. It was DOJ, FBI that, that I look to as being the ones that you can count on. And that's changed. And we've seen them abuse their power. We've seen their agenda. Uh, and we have got to end the weaponization. We've got to get back to a single standard of justice. Now, I want to close by talking about Jack Smith. Uh, I think that the appointment of Jack Smith is a horrendous abuse of power by Merrick Garland. We should not have taken a prosecutor who bought the McDonald case and had it thrown out by the Supreme Court to do this. Do you agree with me on that? And I know you know the Manhattan case is a joke, and I think you think the Atlanta case is a joke. But I believe the D.C. case, I don't know much about the obstruction case, but the D.C. case is a joke, and I think Jack Smith gives off to me the air of fanaticism. What do you think, Governor? He's an overzealous prosecutor, Hugh, and he has a record of that, and you're right. He did the Bob McDonald. He got reversed on that. He doesn't have a good track record. It was a huge mistake. Um, And here's the thing about the J6 stuff. You had J6. They impeached Trump. He was acquitted in the Senate. Then there was nothing. There was no criminal investigation at that point. They only started the criminal investigation like a year and a half later because Congress was goading them into doing it. Um, Now, I do say this. I think it's very difficult for a Republican, much less Donald Trump, to get a fair shake in front of a D.C. jury. I think it's going to be a stacked partisan jury. Governor DeSantis, keep coming back. I hope to host you and Ambassador Haley and former President Trump once the rules are relaxed. Thank you so much. Congratulations on a good night last night. Morning, Gloria America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Dr. Michael, Dr. Michael Oren joins us from Israel. Good morning, Dr. Oren. How are you? I'm good, Hugh. Good to be with you, as always. Well, I got to tell you the background of this. Last night I did debate coverage, so I got back home about midnight and I turned on Daniel Gordis's new audio book, Impossible Takes Longer. And chapter two, unfortunately, recounts the history of the Kishinev pogrom in 1903, when I think I want to get my numbers right. About 120 Jews were murdered in the streets of Kishinev. Then it, the Odessa pogrom killed 400 in 1905. The Hebron pogrom in, in 1929 killed 67. And I realize he wrote that book in April, but the pogrom of two months ago dwarfs all of this. And it's sort of, he didn't know this was going to happen, but, you know, these are pretty awful events. Do you, does Israel, has it fully internalized how bad it was? On ten seven yet? No, no, not even not internalize it. In certain ways, we've never moved beyond October seventh. Um, the country is still, you know, bogged down emotionally uh, in October seventh, and I think it's going to take a very long time. 
here, even the notion that we lost hundreds of soldiers on that day, that, you know, that is very difficult to internalize. And we haven't, you know, even come to, we haven't confronted who these soldiers were, their faces. You know, whenever a soldier is killed in Gaza every day, there's, there's a portrait of that soldier in the news and you read about that soldier. But we're talking about hundreds of soldiers who are lost and we don't know them. So it's all going to be part of the healing process that's going to um, that's going to come at the end of this war. It's going to begin at the end of this war. It's a healing process that's going to be on many levels. It's going to be emotional. It's going to be political. It's going to be strategic. Uh, but it's an essential process. Now, you have just come back from the States raising money for United Hatzalah, and I hope you were successful. Eighty-seven <laughs> soldiers have been killed already of the IDF in the Gaza operation. I do not expect this to waver in any way or to end short of complete and utter destruction of Hamas. Do you? It has no choice. It has to be. We, we cannot restore internal security. People forget. They always talk about the homeless Palestinians. We have 250,000 Israelis who have been living you know, in hotels and in guests of people's houses now for two months. Their lives completely uh, upended. Uh, they can't return to their homes. Uh, the southern part of the country would be re- rendered, in effect, uninhabitable if Hamas can reorganize, uh, rearm, and, and stage this next attack. And, and Hamas leaders say openly, we're going to do this a second time, a third time, the fourth time. It's not going to happen. So we have to continue this. You know, it's interesting, you know, there's a lot of criticism of, of previous Israeli governments, and I served in several of them, that um, that didn't mount this type of offensive every time Hamas fired, you know, 800 to 1,000 rockets at it. We didn't do it. And I think one of the key reasons was not only that the people thought that Hamas could be bought off, but also that Israeli society was unwilling to pay the price here. And the price was estimated. The price tag was the lives of 500 soldiers. October 7th ended that debate. And 95 percent of Israelis have internalized that we have to pay this price. And there's no way around it. Every soldier's death is, is the is the end of a universe for a family. We understand that. But we have no choice. Right now, Dr. Oren, you are a Princeton man. I am a Harvard guy, and I am deeply embarrassed by President Gay of Harvard, who should have resigned yesterday. The University of Pennsylvania president should have quit. Ditto MIT. Did you have a chance to watch the embarrassment of elite American education two days ago? I watched it several times. I watched it several times. It, um, it wasn't just that their answers, this notion that somehow uh, genocide, threats of genocide have to be contextualized by people actually committing genocide. You know, this just the, the, the thorough insanity of that response. It was also the manner of their response, that they had a smirk on their faces. And it, um, to me, it bespoke a, a moral and intellectual co- corruption of these, of these institutions. And I, I think it goes hand in hand with financial corruptions. We're finding more and more about, you know, uh, Qatari donations to these universities, uh, especially Yale, which apparently hid its donations uh, from Qatar and under all sorts of different schemes. Um, I think yesterday was a metaphor for what happened in higher education in many cases in the United States generally. Now, how would you fix that? I, my personal view is that the Harvard Corporation, and the board of overseers need to jointly dismiss President Gay and buy out everybody. They've got a $50 billion endowment. They can give everyone a golden parachute and push them off the campus and take the keys to their office. And it's not going to recover until they do. And then you expel every student involved in anything that menaces another student. It's not hard, Dr. Oren. Do you think it's hard? Yeah, but, no, I don't think it's hard. I think that the, the process, what's, what's occurred on American campuses is, is, the, is the end process of, that took 60 years. It began in the 1960s with the Youth Rebellion. Youth Rebellion tried to export its ideas beyond the university gates it didn't succeed, so they went, be- went behind the gates, closed the gates behind them, okay, and, and created their, their Marxian dystopia within these universities. And reversing that process is going to take many years, many years. Um, you know, um, I, I taught at Harvard back in 2006, and I was present at Harvard Yard when Larry Summers resigned. And you remember why he resigned? Uh, uh, remarks about women in sciences. Yeah, it was also about, about anti-Semitism. He said that, that, that many of the, the effect, many of the people on campus were, were anti-Semitic in effect, if not in intent, right? And so this, this is not new. This goes back 15 years, right? more than 15 years. Stand by so for a second, Dr. Oren. I want to continue to talk to you for five minutes off air, and then we'll put it in the podcast and use it tomorrow. Don't go anywhere, America. Dr. Oren will be right back with me from Israel after these messages. 
want to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is. I, but, but we don't... They, I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that, because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And um, that is a... And it's healthy. It's wise. It's yes. productive. 864-644-1900. That's... 864 864- Six four four nineteen hundred. MyPhDWeightLoss.com. As we head into the holidays, maybe you want to take off a few pounds before we get there. That might be the best way to do it. MyPhDWeightLoss.com. I am back now with Dr. Michael Oren. Dr. Oren, I want to ask you about the mechanics of flooding the tunnels because it's gotten some coverage by the Wall Street Journal, a glancing reference in the Times of Israel. The Israeli chief of staff said, oh, that's a good idea, but I don't want to talk about specifics. What do you think about that? Because it seems to me that if you have an ant farm and you fill it with water, it starts at the bottom and the ants run to the top. What do you think? I'm just a, I'm just a lawyer. I'm not a so, physicist. <laughs> so here is, yeah, I, I, I think I've mentioned it on this program before. I've, I've written about it. It was uh, so in an interview I had with the Wall Street Journal about uh, two weeks ago, uh, I mentioned the possibility of flooding the tunnels. And because this is what the Egyptians did. And uh, with seawater, the sea is right there. You can just put a couple of pumps there. Our problem is the hostages. So if we don't, if we don't know where the hostages are, uh, then you can't flood the tunnels entirely. If we have a better sense of where the hostages are, we can begin to eliminate the tunnels one after another. Uh, and that's militarily, Israel has been doing this. IDF has, has claimed to have already destroyed 500 tunnels. Now, that, I don't know, you know, in terms of how many thousands of tunnels the, the Hamas has. They have over 300 miles of tunnels. Uh, that go down about 200 feet, quite deep. But the obvious answer would be to use seawater. You could also use, you can use a flammable substance. There's many ways you can clear out a tunnel. What you don't want to do is send soldiers down there because tunnels are the great equalizers, Hugh. You know, you can have the most powerful army in the world, but when you go into a tunnel, this, you know, American service people knew this from Vietnam. They knew it to a certain degree in the battles of Mosul um, as well, where there were tunnels against ISIS. Um, in that tunnel, it's just it's you and your pistol against the, against the terrorist with his AK-47. The Oakley, it, it, uh, that's not a very good balance. It's like, um, matter of fact, one of the most dangerous units to be in the Israeli army is a commando unit that that's, that that it, that its expertise is clearing out tunnels, very high casualty rate. So the best way to do it is not send anybody down there, but to simply you know flood or uh, ignite. The well, explain to me. My assumption is. Either Hamas is going to ransom the terrorists for their lives, uh, the, the hostages for their right. lives, or they're not. If they are, if you slowly fill up the tunnels with seawater, they'll move the hostages up, up a level, up a level, up a level. And if they're going to use the hostages, they'll surrender and use the hostages as bargaining chips. But I don't see any other way of getting them out. And I know that Netanyahu, the prime minister, met with the hostage families and they're very upset. But is there any alternative to forcing the surrender of Hamas? None. My my working assumption is that as the noose tightens around Hamas, around their leadership, they will come back to the negotiating table and they're going to try to play for time. Remember, keep in mind, Hamas's goal is a ceasefire. That's what all they care about. It's the only way they're going to survive is the ceasefire. And they think that, that by playing with time, the Palestinian civilian casualties will mount up. Pressure will continue on the Biden administration and other foreign governments to impose a ceasefire. And that means Hamas wins. It gets away with mass murder. Israel loses. Um, so they're going to try to play for time. Their big problem is going to be, and listen to this, Hugh, is that the hostages that remained are going to come out and tell, talk, tell the world what they went through. Everything you know, from physical torture to sexual abuse. Um, and that will not redound, I do not believe, to Hamas's benefit in the long run. Will there be trials of these terrorists under Eichmann rules or is Israel permanently uh, done away with the death penalty? Well, Israel right now is done to the death penalty, um, but there is a, there's legislation afoot that has been tabled to to, to renew uh, death penalty for uh, for terrorists. But it's interesting you should mention the Eichmann uh, trial yesterday. Uh, coming back to Israel, I had precisely that conversation. Are we going to have this type of trial? Because um, you in, in America, you don't see the testimonies of the terrorists. American television will not broadcast anything that could be quote unquote coerced. 
even though these, these, these confessions are not chorus. But in Israel, we are seeing them, and they are terrifying. They are shocking. We're talking about yeah, multiple rapes, uh, not just of women, but also of men and also of, de of dead people, necrophilia. And, uh, and they, they talk very openly about it and how they were instructed to do this uh, by their commanders, these terrorists. And I think, you know, on one hand, and there was a difference of opinion around the table on several experts, it was very important that we actually show this and that we have a, have a trial, an Eichmann-like trial. Other people were less skept were skeptical, feeling that the, the, the world won't cover it. And they'll say it's coerced or, you know, American television won't broadcast it because the world has changed since 19, since 1960. All right. My, my last question, Dr. Warren, uh, the U.N. Secretary General is a moron and he's also quite obviously anti-Israel. What do you think yeah. the United States ought to do with this building and the people in it? <laughs> That's not a fair question. I've been saying this for years. You know, that, that piece of real estate along the, the Easter is a beautiful piece of real estate. It'd be a great park. I, I do not understand why the United States allows a, a patently anti-Semitic institution to remain on its territory. I say, let them move to Tehran. Let them move to Damascus. Be my guest. Move to Moscow. Uh, I don't understand. I think it's incompatible, certainly with the United States. It's incompatible with New York City, which has the, the largest Jewish population of any city outside of the state of Israel. Um, I don't get it. Um, and I think you make some very good housing and you know, affordable housing along that river with a very good view. Or you could put in a coalition of Western democracies that are actually dedicated to the spread of freedom and an incremental increase in liberty and lit, uh, literacy across the globe. Dr. Michael Oren, good to have you from Israel. I'm going to I'm going to try and figure out how to get over there in January and broadcast for a month. If that's the case, I hope you'll join me in doing that. Be great. Dr. Michael Oren yep. on X at Dr. Michael Oren. Thank you, my friend. Good to see you again. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside the Beltway, joined by Congressman Juan Siscomani, freshman in the House of Representatives, and I am pleased to say a member of the Appropriations Committee. Good morning, Congressman Siscomani. Welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Good morning, Hugh. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's good to have you up early. There's a supplemental coming your way, and I don't know which appropriators mm -hmm. get to work on it, but I'm hoping there is at least conversation about cutting off all federal funding of Harvard, MIT, and Penn, after that disgraceful performance before the House Education Committee. Is that being kicked around in the conference? I haven't been in meetings if that's been discussed. I think there are several meetings going around, depending on what subcommittees you're on and, and, and what part of the process you're involved in. Uh, I was involved yesterday in, in a meeting discussing the supplemental, uh, very much focused around the border, and I know we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let me comment on, on what you just said regarding the universities and, and, uh, and their their lack of response to a very simple and basic question by uh, Representative Stefanik. It, it was, it was, um, I, I'm not even sure the, the adjective to use on that. I mean, embarrassing, terrible, uh, you name it, but it was, it was very disappointing to see. And I think there, there should be some, some, you know, some kind of action on that. I mean, it's very telling that these, the three universities were not able to respond to that very simple question that you and I would have responded in, less than two seconds. And, and that's, that's terrible for the students that attend terrible for the parents that are paying tuition for their uh, children to go to those schools and, and terrible for the country to have those three key universities respond that way. Terrible. Well, I'm going to come to the border because the supplemental will have border money. And I want to find out what that is, but it seems to me that when you mark up the supplemental, 
If you add the language, notwithstanding any other law, no money shall go to the Harvard Corporation or the Board of Overseers or any entity controlled thereby unless and until a report is received by Congress to deemed sufficient response to the anti-Semitism on their campus and just cut them off. They got $625 million. By the way, they've got a $50 billion endowment at Harvard, and they got $625 million in fiscal year 21. God knows what they're getting this year. So that's my suggestion. To yeah. You. What what is going into well, the border? Very well, uh, Hugh, very well taken on that. I, I think you're I think you're spot on, on on how we need to deal with this with true direct force. Anti-Semitism will not be tolerated by the United States Congress, by our country. It's an appropriator. I am committed to making sure that I use every tool that I have to make sure that we press on this, that we protect every citizen and that we remind America that that will, will not tolerate that ever. Yeah, that that notwithstanding any other law language is the silver bullet of Congress. So good luck with that. What do you want to see in the supplemental about the border, Congressman Siskamani? Well, we definitely need resources, and that, I'll start with that. And we, we talked that to the speaker yesterday when we were discussing the, how the, what the supplemental will look like and, and what it would have. And uh, however, on the, on the resources alone, it's not just – getting the resources, several aspects in that. It's It's got to be resources with very direct accountability attached to that. We can't just throw money at this problem. That's not going to work. Uh, and, and this administration has proven over and over again that even with resources or without resources, they just do not do what needs to get done. Uh, a, a clear proof of that is the closure of the Lukeville port, port of Entry that just happened uh, uh, earlier just a, a few days ago. Uh, happened on Monday to be to be exact. Uh, this is just an example of how they continue to miss it and mismanage any authority they have over this issue. Hugh, you and I have talked about this. Even without any additional resources, they could stop this flow tomorrow if they decided to enforce the current law. If they decided to actually enforce the current and, and real asylum uh, rules around this and start sending people back that don't qualify for asylum on an immediate basis. That could happen immediately. So I am very careful of not just throwing money at this problem, giving DHS more money without any accountability. I was clear with the speaker that we're going to need to have very specific results and measurements attached to this and direction to that funding. It should go to agents. It should go to technology. Sure, it should go, but it should not be going to just all processing. That's where these agents are being moved to, processing and transportation. They're abandoning checkpoints. After they cross the border, they're they're closing lanes in some ports and they're closing ports overall in some areas. That's where the majority of the fentanyl is being apprehended at the ports of entry. We cannot afford that. So I don't trust this administration to just give them money for the problem and, and have them go figure it out. We're going to have to be very specific in the direction of where that money goes. Now, Senator Lankford on the program two days ago said they want substantive changes to the asylum law in the supplemental, which you folks can do at Congress. Do you expect that there will yes. actually be changes in the asylum law, not just in resources, not just in patching the fence, but changing the eligibility to claim asylum in this supplemental? That That's what exactly what I'm advocating for. There are aspects in H.R. 2 that we can get on immediately regarding asylum. There are many aspects in H.R. 2 that I would like to see in this supplemental, but the ones I'm going to be focusing on are the ones who run asylum. We need to increase the claim for credible fear. Uh, right now, they can just say, uh, I'm afraid to be in my country, and boom, they, they, they get, they're allowed in, and they get allowed to stay for however long. Uh, and they are, they're given uh, the permission to stay and the cell phone and so on, and you know everything else, and, and then a trip wherever they want to go. So that, that needs to be increased, and they need to have incredible fear to be able to stay. The other aspect of HR2 is speeding up the process, investing in, in judges that can make decisions quicker on if they're claim to asylum is legitimate or not, because what was happening before is that they would claim asylum. The judges will review this. And while they did that, people stayed in custody. And so it, it couldn't be very long because we didn't have the facilities to apprehend all these people at the same time. So the process need, needed to be uh, sped up. And that's what happened. Within three to five days, people were noticed if notified if they were uh, legitimately uh, an asylum seeker or not. And if they were not, they were sent back. That's when the MPP program, the Migrant Protection Protocol, came in, also known as Remain in Mexico program. These are all things that are part of HR2 that should be implemented in the supplemental so that we can have the real policy change. And then the resources can actually go to actually make a difference. If not, Hugh, we're going to find ourselves in the same position, over 17,000 apprehensions uh, just uh, you know a week ago on this, over about 3,000 a day. 
in the Tucson sector, which now leads the nation in numbers. Unreal. Uh, these used to be weekly or even monthly numbers, and now they're daily. We can't you know, have Congress, that. It's not I, trending I in the direction. Make sure that the communities most impacted, and it's not New York and it's not Massachusetts, it's Arizona and Texas and Nevada. They are, yeah. I, I saw a Fox News film last night, 12,000 people came through a hole in the wall in Arizona. Those folks go yeah. places. They burden law enforcement. Is there funding for the local communities that are dealing with what is a tidal wave of people going through what is an open border? Yeah, this has been another area where I've been a staunch advocate for. Uh, I've been saying this because, as you know, I worked for the state of Arizona before before being in Congress. So we were seeing the, the burden of of the local communities and the state caring for the failure of the federal government. So I, I've felt it not only for just a belief being a member of Congress, but by being on the other side and having to pay, uh, you know, the, the bills and, uh, and for the consequences of the failures of, of the Biden and Mallorca's lack of leadership. So I don't I, I believe that the local counties and our community should not be paying for that. And that's why these mayors uh, and county supervisors that I've met here in the office and also back home, Democrat and Republicans, they are all equally concerned about this because this is where party affiliation and party lines and philosophy goes out the window. When all of a sudden you have these humongous bills to pay for the county of Pima, it's over four million uh, that that they're paying uh, for the cost uh, four point one to be exact here. I've got my stat um, uh, for for what's uh, for the real cost of what's happening with with the migrant surge and the transportation and the processing and the uh, the shelters and everything else that comes with that. And I've visited those shelters and some of those shelters uh, Hugh, that I'm talking about uh, 90 some percent single adult males. And, and you, you sit there and you're like, this is not what some people will, would want you to believe, that it's just families fleeing persecution. Uh, you see all kinds. And, and, and honestly, at that at some point, some groups, they're not even from Latin America. You see them from other parts of the world. CBP will confirm this of where they're coming from. They come in fluxes of Sudan or Somalia and, you know, just different countries from around the world. Uh, China, we're seeing a lot of Chinese single male adults. That is worrisome because that that goes right into our national security concerns. Well, good luck, Congressman Siskamani, in holding the line. I know you will. I hope your colleagues will. I hope Speaker Johnson will. And if you can cut off Harvard, Penn, and MIT in the process, more glory to you. That's $625 million. It shouldn't go to Harvard and should go to the Border Patrol and to the communities most impacted by Joe Biden's open border. I agree. Juan Siskamani, good to see you. Merry Christmas, my friend. We'll talk in the new year. Don't go anywhere, America, except over to HughHewitt.com. Speaking of Christmas, we are running an Angel Tree fundraiser. They are our sponsors, and we sponsor with them the Angel Tree fundraiser. The banner is at the top of HughHewitt.com. Every $25 you give saves Christmas for one child. Now, you'll never see that child until the other side. But you are being the hands and feet, if you're a Christian of Christ, in participating in this program. You're helping a mom or a dad provide Christmas, a Bible, a present, a handwritten note from them to the good offices of Angel Tree and Ministry of Prison Fellowship. It's completely tax deductible. The banner is at the top of QQIT.com. I know you've been intending to do it. Please stop right now and go and do it, and then come right back to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Congressman Mike Garcia from California joins me now. Good morning, Congressman. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, you. Thanks for having me. First, I got to do forewarned is forearmed. The Fetching Mrs. Hewitt is going to a fundraiser you're having in Orange County at Lucky's house because you can bring you a check. I'm not allowed to give money, given my rules, but she can. Yeah. And you flew with our son-in-law, so she's bringing I'm you a fun. check. But she's going to lobby you for John Waldron going from a Navy Cross to a Medal of Honor. So I'm going to forewarn you to be ready for that. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, we got to work the uh, Lost Squadron guys, too. Yeah. The Lost Squadron MOHs. But let's talk, Congressman, about the NDAA and where it is right now, because I know you're in the thick of it. You're one of the negotiators. Is it going to get done before the end of the year? Uh, it's likely going to get done before the end of uh, the year. We It came out of conference. I didn't like the process. You know, conferences, when the Senate and the House get together, they hash through the elements of it. Uh, that didn't really happen. We we were invited into a room. Um, we were allowed to give two minutes. Uh, there was probably 50 of us who were conference attendees. But there wasn't debate negotiations. There wasn't a vote uh, for some of the uh, the elements that were in question. 
uh, and they just produced this NDA yesterday. Asked us to sign on to it without being able to read the text. So I'm not I'm not happy with this process. I'm also not happy that uh, the pay raise that I had been leading and in getting into the House version of the NDA as well as the Appropriations Committee, which raises the base salary for an E1 from $22,000 a year to $31,000 a year, which gets them off of food stamps. You know, a third of our troops qualify for food stamps right now. That provision was stripped out of this NDAA. Um, and then from what I understand, we're still waiting for the bill text. There's a four-month extension, a clean extension of FISA, which is which is another really dangerous element of this. So as of right now, I'm not a fan of this NDAA. You, I'll tell you that right now. Well, we've got to make sure that we pass the appropriation bills and fund the military. But uh, the authorizing piece of this is not looking too great, uh, and so I'm not I'm not a fan of this. If we if we can't give our troops the minimum salaries needed to get them off of food stamps in the midst of some of these uh, record low retention, record low recruitment challenges, it, it doesn't matter what you do in terms of the, the bombers, the, the submarines, the the, the spacecraft. Uh, we've got to do better for our troops. You got to have soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in everything that we give them. Now, uh, we may have a difference of opinion, Congressman. And I'll tell you where. I don't know what you were doing in 1983 or 84, but I was the Attorney General Special Assistant for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and we can't go dark. That is mostly about bad guys operating in our country, national security threats, and we. I yep. signed off on hundreds of warrants to surveil them. And I know some American citizens get caught up in that. We need to strengthen the protection of American citizens, but we can't go dark. Do you yep. think there's some way to to fix FISA in the short term so that we just strengthen? Yeah, there, there absolutely is. Uh, and this is what my criticism is of this NDAA. Uh, I was seven in 1983, but now today <laughs> I was uh, I was not a part of those uh, processes, but I today I sit on the Intel Committee, and I know that for a fact that we have a good reformation bill, a, a bill that not only extends 702 FISA, but also reforms all of FISA, not just 702, and prevents uh, the uh, sort of abuses that we've seen over the last few years uh, relative to Trump, relative to others. We have a member of Congress who was investigated under FISA without him knowing and without uh, justification. So we have put in a, a bill under Chairman Turner on the House Intelligence Committee, a very meaningful reform package that unfortunately was supposed to be dealt with either this week or next week um, and instead was punted. And this is this is why I don't like the fact that we're just punting on this. We have a turnkey, very meaningful uh, reform bill that, that uh, prevents the abuses and allows it to still be used as a national security tool and we have chosen to just uh, kick the can for another four months with the current uh, with the current extension. So I well, agree. We, I, we can't go dark. It's better than it's better than having a gap in in it. But uh, the reality is, we have a good solution right now that we should be. Uh, I wish you'd put in there. You got to talk to me after the retirement announcement of Speaker Emeritus McCarthy yesterday and the retirement of Patrick McHenry. That's a lot of GOP institutional knowledge walking out the door. And I understand why they're both walking out the door and I will miss them. That makes you does that make you and Ken Calvert the key guys in the California delegation for the for the red team? Because you're on Intel. Ken Calvert is the chair of, of House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee. I've heard rumors about him too. Tell me that's not so. We can't lose all the Californians with authority. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm on that the subcommittee with uh, Ken Calvert as well. I don't think he's leaving uh, look, when you're down to, what, 11 folks in California out of 52, every one of us is key. And, uh, you know, just three or four years ago, there were only seven of us. So uh, conservatives in California uh, who can win are like unicorns right now. And uh, it's not a great environment, but we are the ones that make the majority. And we don't win. We don't keep this majority. And, and we've, we're going to be down to, what, a one or two seat majority between God, gravity, indictments, and retirements, uh, we can literally lose the majority any day now if we don't uh, execute and do our jobs. Now, now, the rules are such, I can't even comment on when my wife decides to write a check for a, uh, a candidate. And she said, she informed me, she didn't ask my permission, she informed me that she was uh, supporting Mike Garcia because she knows you flew with the son-in-law, she knows you're on armed services. I didn't know you are on Intel, by the way, I did not know that. And yeah. uh, so you're on there I'm with Waltz and Gallagher, that's a heck of a... That's a heck of a yeah. committee. Yeah, I am not on armed services. I'm on Intel, and I'm on the Defense uh, Subcommittee on Appropriations. Ah. Act is what it's called. So, uh, yeah, but I but uh, obviously two very good committees, and I'm also on 
science, space, and technology. So I'm the authorizer and the appropriator for NASA, the intelligence communities, and then the appropriator for all things related to defense. So uh, it's where I want to be. It's where it's where I would like to be, you know, at the end of a 20-year career, and I'm blessed to be here after three years. So, Well, I want good. people to know how to find your campaign. I cannot give to it, but they certainly can. Where do they find Mike Garcia's campaign? Because Democrats are coming after you. Yeah, it's at elect Mike Garcia uh, for all the handles on social media and electmikegarcia.com uh, for uh, the website. And obviously, we, we we are in the thick of it right now. We've got uh, our primary coming up in uh, less than three months. So uh, we're all hands on deck. It's a, uh, it's a very blue seat in uh, the belly of the beast in California. And, and like I said, this is where we make the majority happen. And, uh, you know, it's 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 right now it's imperative we have people who are legislating who are also not crazy and yeah i, I like tom mcclintock i like kevin i like all these people but the heart of the delegation with the retirement of the speaker emeritus is ken calvert and you and we need to keep you where you are have the democrats found someone to run against you yet because you're pretty good at shooting down things yeah we've had uh, what 33 opponents down three years so, so they they found another guy who is uh um you know he's he, we it's hard to figure out exactly who he is uh he's not really from the district he's self-funding uh um, you know high net worth kind of guy so on paper he looks good uh we, we treat him and we will you know just dis- dispose of him like all the others but uh we we take it seriously and uh it'll be one democrat running against me this cycle and um you know it's uh it's something that we uh are very aggressive with obviously going into the primary now congressman and going back to the ndaa and the fisa uh I have read this morning in news items that European security chiefs have the highest alert level ever for terrorism. And it's sparked by, you know, some sort of misplaced desire to, to be with Hamas and the headlines of terrorists killing innocent people. But I also saw the testimony by Director Ray that all yep. of our red lights are going off. How do you assess the situation in the United States this holiday season? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've been asserting since Afghanistan, frankly, uh, last uh, two years ago now that uh, we we are more vulnerable today than we were on September 10th, 2001. Um, we we have let our guard down. We have not implemented the lessons learned from the 9/11 Commission that were were burned and and written in blood. Um, we, we have an open border. We have uh, a region around Afghanistan that is not really being watched and tracked correctly with terrorist hotbeds and cells reinvigorating themselves. We have uh, what's going on in the Middle East, uh, Ukraine, around the world, and the weakest uh, president in the history of the country with the most passive secretary of defense underneath him. Uh, so, yes, Director Ray's comments were spot on. It was uh, sh- shocking to hear him e- even, you know, even hear him say that after the last, uh, call it three years. And we, we dragged him into the, the, the tank to have a classified brief to make sure that we understand exactly the rationale for his comments. And, um, there is a rationale for the comments. We are vulnerable, and uh, this is why you don't uh, you, you don't pull all the levers that they, this administration has pulled. We're we've put ourselves in this position, and it wasn't it wasn't uh, preordained. I am so glad that you and Gallagher and Walt. We have serious people on Intel, and we need serious people on Intel and defense probes. Let me close, Congressman, by bicycling around my favorite idea. Harvard got $625 million from the federal government in 2021. God knows what they got last year. It's probably a lot more. They have a $50 billion endowment. I would like a notwithstanding any other law, no money shall go to Harvard. After I watched the, and I'm a Harvard guy, the the president of Harvard embarrassed us, could not name and condemn anti-Semitism, could not say anything out of context. Can we cut off funding to Harvard and MIT and Penn for this year, notwithstanding any other law? Because I don't think they should get a dime for anything. Yeah, I think we're looking at that. I, you know, I, I think it has to be done, and I agree. That these are the easiest questions that you can be asked in front of Congress, and these presidents were stumbling over themselves uh, trying not to offend those that, uh, that, that, frankly, will be offended by everything and, 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 and anything anyway. So. Yes, uh, is the short answer. These things should be at a minimum taxed. Uh, they should be, be, in my opinion, stripped out. And you know, if parents and grandparents need to be paying attention. Don't don't donate uh, to a school or, or pay for a tuition that is that is uh, advocating for this type of anti-Semitic behavior. And and for God's sake, don't give to the foundations that that these things are running on. So, uh, and I agree. Yes, uh, Hugh, the, the federal government should not be uh, supporting these folks. Uh, they they are first of all healthy enough and wealthy enough. 
uh, and the fact that they can't figure out their their principles and values in front of Congress uh, without without tripping over themselves like this is is shameful. So let's close, Congressman. We're coming up to the game. What are you, Annapolis, class of 99? Am I right about that? Uh, 98, yep. 98. So uh, are you feeling confident? <laughs> no, I, this is the bottom line. It'll be a great game, but uh, as when I was there, we uh, lost the Army three out of four years, so you're never Ooh. confident going to this weekend. You just, uh, you're hopeful it's a good game, and their, their passing yards will be single-digit uh, number of yards, I'm sure, for the full game. Well, I, I, I'll bet you're working this weekend. You can't go to the game, right? You can't get up there. Yeah, I'll be home uh, in the district uh, with the constituents, but uh, I would love to maybe next year. Go Navy, beat Army, and keep working. Congressman Mike Garcia, I appreciate you taking the time very much. appreciate you being on Intel and Defensive Probes. Do the, do the work, get the ball over the goal line, and, and keep working. We appreciate it. Mike Garcia, electmikegarcia.com, electmikegarcia.com. I keep saying, when, when Speaker McCarthy announced his retirement yesterday, what a great man. He's been my friend for 30 years. And he'll do great by the Republican Party in retirement, and he'll go off and do some good and fun things and finally take a vacation. We got to keep Calvert, we got to keep Garcia, we got to keep all of the Republicans from California. My old state is down to about a handful of smart guys, but Mike Garcia is one of them, Ken Calvert is another one of them, and they're helping craft this bill and push it over the goal line. Not the best bill, but we can't make the good the enemy, the, the perfect the enemy the good. We're not going to do that. Stay tuned, America. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by former United States Senator Jim Talent. Senator Talent, before I go to personnel in a second Trump administration, I want to ask you about the Biden administration's support, non-support, up, down, all around attitude towards Israel. I'm appalled by the vice president, by the secretary of defense, by Secretary Blinken, I applaud President Biden going to Israel, but I am dizzy with the different positions they've taken. What's your assessment? Uh, I'm worse than dizzy. I'm uh, I'm extremely frustrated. Uh, I saw Kamala Harris's, um, I, what do you call it, when she read the list of the five no's or something like that. Uh, look, the Israelis need more than anything else is our support for their narrative, for their explanation of why they're doing what they're doing. They don't need our tactical advice. They don't need our troops, by the way. They asked about that last night on the debate. They do need some some interceptors, some missiles, some things like that. But they mostly just need our support. And they're fighting for us and our interests in destroying Hamas. And so that's what we ought to give them. They need our Iron Dome of diplomacy. We need to just say to the world and Gutierrez and all the other idiots at the U.N., we are with Israel. They are going to kill Hamas and they're going to fight until they're dead because they cannot let that organization exist on their southern border. An Iron Dome of diplomacy is not hard to do, but we can't stay on that script given these people that are running the Biden team. Yeah, I'm going to use that. Uh, you Iron Dome of diplomacy. I will try to remember to credit you. That's exactly Uh, You don't need to. I mean, So I want to move with you now to the latest parlor game. Donald Trump is a tyrant. He's approaching the dread pirate. Robert is at the city gates. Hide the children. You know, I've read five articles this week. And now the latest is in Axios that Cash Patel is going to run the Department of Defense. And there aren't any people who have any experience. This is all nonsense. If you were asked to serve a former senator, you would be confirmed. Would you serve anywhere the president asked you to serve, Jim? Well, sure. I mean, there'd be some personal considerations, you. I mean, uh, you know, there are some jobs I don't particularly want, but absolutely. Look, you. Because this is Patriots do. Patriots do what the president asked them. That's right. This is projection and politics. Projection in the sense, you, who weaponized the FBI? Who stalinized the campuses? Eric Holder. Who set up the censorship industrial complex that Matt Taibbi writes? So well about who locked down the country and closed the schools? Who was authoritarian? Yeah. I mean, it's, the last, it's this administration and its politics because they know if the campaign is about Joe Biden and his record, they lose. So no matter who the Republican nominee is, and it's probably going to be President Trump, they're going to attack them hyster- hysterically and try and make the election about that. And what we have to do is just focus it keep focusing it back on Biden and his record on inflation and border and crime and foreign policy. Now, Governor DeSantis is coming up next hour. He had his best debate of the four. He's got momentum in Iowa. He's got Bob Vanderplant and the governor on his side. He could win Iowa. 
Is there any way that either he or Nikki Haley emerges one-on-one after New Hampshire, Jim Talent? Well, sure. Uh, I mean, I think I kind of think it's unlikely at this point uh, because they're they're both obviously tough campaigners. They both want it. I suspect they're both going to be doing well enough uh, so that it's plausible for them to stay in the race. And they both will be going. When is Florida this year? You, I should have looked uh, it up after South Carolina and Nevada's in between it, if I'm correct. Okay, so they both are going to be going south to their home states. And if I was sitting there advising them, I would say, look, I would err on the side of staying in until the primary in your home state, uh, particularly if you're running well there. So we may or may not. But, yeah, it's possible. Sure. I mean, if now, if they if one of them does poorly, both Iowa and New Hampshire. I used a hackneyed football analogy on Meet the Press last night, so I'm going to use it on you. If you hang around, stuff happens in the game. The Jets hung around the Browns. They were three scores down with two minutes to go last year, and the Jets won. Because the Browns did stupid stuff. Politics is that way, right? If you hang around, you might just win. I expect them to hang around. What do you think? Well, that's, uh, yes. They're going to hang around. They're going to err on the side of hanging around. Well, look, that's how Biden got the nomination. It's it's how John McCain got the nomination in in, uh, 2016. I mean, both cases, their campaigns were supposed to be dead. And then it turned at the right time. So timing is everything in politics. I think the way to put it is you I think they will err on the side of sticking around. But I also both think that they're not going to beat a dead horse. So if it really looks like they can't win, they probably will get out. They're both honorable people. And that's really what you ought to do at that point. Quick last question. And if the team DeSantis is listening, it's the first thing I'm going to ask him. What do you put the staying power to Donald Trump to? I have a I have a theory. But what's Jim Talent put his numbers down to? Well, I think it's because people remember when Trump was president, things were pretty good, pretty bleeping good, uh, you. And again, the average voter, if there is an average voter, is interested in what's going to happen in their family, in in their community, with their jobs. And it was was good under Trump, and it's bad under Biden. And I I think that's a pretty powerful case to make if we'll focus on it. Senator Jim Talent, always a pleasure. Uh, One of the calmer heads inside of a D.C. that is hysterical. And I guess Governor DeSantis is coming up right after Noah Rothman. Do not go anywhere, America. You're at the heart of the Beltway. You're listening to me live inside the Beltway. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Stay tuned. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt live inside the Beltway. I was just watching Rich Eisen, maybe the best sports talk show host in America working right now. I think Doug LaMaurice is right up there, but Doug doesn't have the platform that Rich does. And Rich just took out after the presidents of Harvard, MIT and Penn. Good on him. Noah Rothman has been doing the same thing. Noah is my hero in recent weeks because Noah has been unrelenting in his focus on the atrocity that is Hamas and on the necessity of the IDF winning. Hello, Noah. Welcome. I think people think I came up with the idea of dwelling on the word credit. That was your quote. And people gave me credit for it. I just did. I just used quotes, but they ignored it. All praise, all honor to Noah Rothman for that, because you did focus the <laughs> mind. You, Congratulations. Um, what did you make of the testimony of the school presidents? Well, I didn't watch the entire um hearing. But what I did see was abhorrent. And you can kind of imagine, I think we've all had this experience. They're smiling, they're smirking, they're smiling, they think they're hitting their notes and running their numbers, and they get off into the back room and are confronted with the people who are probably supportive of them and probably felt pretty good about their performance. And then the blood rushed out of their faces as they realized what a horrible display they had put on. And you know it was a horrible display because they're all backtracking today. You see, Noah, in, um, in 1986, I'm sorry. 1986, I'm 30 years old. First time I ever appear on C-SPAN. I'm the general counsel at the Office of Personnel Management under Reagan. And I get called up there to get beat over the Patco stuff. You know, it's old ancient history. And my mom calls. She's still alive at the time. And she said, you dummy, did we pay to send you to Harvard to put a pencil in your ear for the whole hearing? Because, of course, I had a pencil in my ear like this. Doing stuff like I didn't realize I was on TV and looking like a moron. So I was expecting mom to be proud. And, uh, uh-uh, you know, I was a moron. They were morons, Noah. That was the worst performance by three professionals who were allegedly highly trained administrators and skilled teachers. Oh, 
What a shudder. Where did you go to college? Here's what's, I went to Drew University undergrad and Seton Hall grad. Um, Have either of the them embarrassed you? Or at least it was different. Have either of those schools embarrassed you? Because both my schools, Harvard and Michigan Law, have embarrassed me. Uh, I, I haven't dug deeply into their records since the 10-7 attack, so I couldn't tell you. But so far, so good. Uh, these are smaller liberal arts colleges. And there's a different culture on those campuses. They produce, they're designed to produce graduates who can navigate their environments. They're not designed to produce trophies, symbols of a cultural uh, milieu in which they, they uh, marinate for these four years. And this is the kind of thing that you saw in that hearing. You could tell that what they were saying is precisely the kind of lingua franca that helps them navigate their environments in these very closed, hermetically sealed environments on very, you know, on Ivy League campuses. And when it was exposed to a broader audience, it bursts into flame. That's how sealed <laughs> uh, these people are and, and enclosed in their environments. And then all of a sudden today they're backtracking and desperately trying to save their careers by striking notes of unambiguous moral clarity. But where was that in front of Congress? Too late. Why was it, it so difficult to say that in front of Congress? Because they've been trained out of it. It's like dancing with the stars. When you when you fall down, you fall down. Now, Noah, there was something called the Solomon Amendment a few decades ago, which prohibited the expenditure of federal money on any campus that would not allow the military to recruit or run an ROTC. It was wildly effective. It stopped all the nonsense. Recruiters started showing up at law schools again. I think we need in this supplemental unequivocal language that not a dime of federal money, notwithstanding any other law, no federal money shall be expended on Harvard, MIT, and Penn unless and until a report is received by the House and the Senate detailing every action they have taken to combat anti-Semitism on their campus, and then, upon having it deemed sufficient to the task, restore funding. What do you think? I'm not opposed to it. Um I am philosophically skeptical of federal efforts to impose cultural mandates on ostensibly private institutions, even those that take taxpayer dollars. But you can tell that commercial pressure is what's being what's most effective here, that we're seeing commercial pressure from not just donors, but the commercial enterprises that these schools have to engage with. And the same thing could be said for elite law firms that have said after 10-7 that you are producing piles of garbage that we will not have anything to do with. And that began to change their outlook, too. There were no consequences associated with the kind of fashionable bigotries that these campuses retailed for so long. They were punching up. They were attacking people on the lowest rung of the intersectional ladder, uh, white males, Jews, heterosexuals, all these people who didn't engender much sympathy from the popular culture. Now, all of a sudden, they encounter consequences and everything changes. The whole calculation changes. And all of it is commercial pressure. So I understand the impulse there. And I think the threat alone may have the uh, desired effect. I'm not opposed to it, but I'm just generally skeptical of the exercise of federal power on private institutions. Well, but the spending power is different. I teach, con getting, law. I teach con law and I don't want speech codes. You can't do that. That's unconstitutional. But the spending power is absolute. They don't have to spend any money and they can always condition it. I want to get to something more basic, Noah. I've been doing my best to refresh my memory about the history of the founding of Israel. I read Martin Gilbert's book years ago. I read Paul Johnson's book years ago. But this fellow, Daniel Gordis, has put out two fabulous books. The most recent was uh, uh, in April, in which he recounts, uh, it's called Impossible Takes Longer. The Kishinev pogrom of 1903 killed 120 Jews. It was in, uh, in uh, what is now Moldova. The pogrom in Odessa in 1905 killed 400 Jews. The pogrom in Hebron in 1929, before the state of Israel existed, killed 67 people. At the time, I think he was thinking he was going to give us a trail of tears that would cause... 10-7 so far surpasses any of the pogroms that we know, except for the Holocaust years. Do you think American higher ed is aware of details like this or the scale of the atrocity? If they are, they have compartmentalized it to a degree that they regard it as purely academic, as something that is you know, an artifact of history that is no longer reflective of our current environment. Indeed, is kind of obscuring, obscures the moral uh, obligations that are imposed on us by the existence of the state of Israel. Look, the existence of the state of Israel 
is a double-edged sword. It is designed to prevent pogroms like this. But by virtue of its existence, it has created a, a, a concentration of Jews in ways that the diaspora didn't allow for in previous eras in American or global history. So you have the ability now to kill many more Jews because they are congregated in a single very small part of the world in the Levant, um, which should highlight for everybody and expose for everybody how um, imperiled the Jewish population is by the prospect of, say, an Iranian bomb. 10-7 should dispel the notion in everyone's mind that if Iran gets a bomb, it will use it to kill as many Jews as it can in a single moment. That's Thank the, you that's for the, saying what that. We're facing now. That's moral clarity. I've talked about this with Haviv Redinger, with Michael Oren. What 10-7 shows us is if you give a weapon to Hamas, any weapon, they will use it to kill Jews simply to delight in the death of Jews. And that includes dirty bombs and real bombs. Iranian proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, Khatib, Hezbollah, the Yemeni Houthis, all of them. They're all of one one mind on this issue. And if if we do not abide by and observe our obligations to Israeli security and our own security, Israel will go it alone. They don't need us. They've done it before. They will do it again. It's incumbent on us to be on the right side of this issue so that we can help guide and navigate this crisis together. Because if we are on the outside of it, um, we will find our influence rather truncated and events will spiral out of control without our, uh, our ability to influence them. Now, the one thing we can give them besides some munitions, which basically they can make with enough lead time without us, the Iron Dome stuff, they need a diplomatic Iron Dome. And they're not getting it from Tony Blinken, Kamala Harris and Lloyd Austin. And I doubt the president knows what's going on really day to day, what's going on in his administration. How bad do you score the wobbling, the back and forth, the incoherence of Team Biden on supporting Israel? Look, in public, rhetorically, they hit all the right notes in ways that I'm very appreciative of. I don't think we've seen an administration since 10-7, any presidential administration since the founding of the state of Israel, say the things in support of Israeli sovereignty and its right to exist that we've seen from this administration. You know, bully. Good for you. And to the degree that the administration has supported this campaign, it has been valuable. But they are clearly torn. And that that um, internal tension is now spilling out into the streets. Uh, because they are under a lot of pressure from a very small, very loud minority group within the Democratic coalition that does not support Israel's right to defend itself against a genocidal terrorist militia on its borders. Point blank. Don't support it. And so when we see something like this credit line, the notion here that they have this metaphorical bank of support that was that, that is filled up by the blood of Jews, by dead Jews, and is gradually expended as they justify, they pursue their righteous and justified right to self-defense is morally repugnant. And we should well stop said, here. Noah C. Rothman. Follow Noah at National Review. Follow him on Exit Noah C. Rothman. Keep coming back, Noah. I appreciate it. He's the author of The Rise of the New Puritans, but there's a new book coming from him soon, I think, on Israel and America, I hope. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.